Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. Uh, my name is Jason Dapness. I am Living Trash, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, and we're podcasters, not action movie heroes, but you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Jason did take mine this time. We knew it was going to happen eventually. So I'll just say I have some trash to get rid of, and I'm going to do it right here, right now on this podcast. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Folks, give it up. We have in the booth with us again, uh, favorite son, somebody kicking with the music. Uh, We have Seth Zarate joining us on the line. Seth. Big podcast guest features. Cool. You can find me on Twitter at SN Zarati. Uh, today's film uh, is playing as part of the Satoshi Kon, the uh, anime's great genius series at the Trilon Cinema. Um, the following films will be playing as part of that series. Uh, well, I'm already mucking this up. Tokyo Godfather's played. I'm trying to like bring Aaron's energy of like dropping the title in his summary, but I don't think I can really do that when it's just one person. Uh, Tokyo Godfather's Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress. Um, and uh and and paprika and paprika are are all playing at the trilon cinema in minneapolis minnesota go to trilon.org for tickets to those make sure that you get your tickets um our our first showing of this movie uh seemed to have nearly sold out um and i was quite surprised but quite happy to see that uh anyway they're playing at the trilon go to trilon.org get tickets um today's film as you've probably already uh gathered from the title and from my bumbled intro is tokyo godfathers the 2003 animated feature film uh directed by satoshi kone um it concerns a trio of homeless people who discover a living baby abandoned in the garbage on christmas in tokyo um in their quest for its parents uh washed up gin um trans woman hannah and uh runaway youth miyuki run into all kinds of fun vignettes and bizarre circumstances that all lead them uh to and from and closer to um the actual parents of this child and sort of reveal pieces of their own lives and their own families uh both found and born uh through all along the way i again we didn't know that aaron wasn't going to be joining for this uh until maybe a couple minutes ago so we have that for the summary um i think it's a pretty straightforward uh story it it goes a lot more places than that but it is uh incredibly um incredibly simple outset which is actually one of the things that a lot of people say about this movie uh but for right now i want to get to what seth has to say about this movie seth give me your thoughts uh thank you um this was my second time watching tokyo godfathers i recently watched it with you jason uh christmas 2020 uh, during the pandemic. Uh, and so I've had a little bit more time to let my thoughts ruminate. Uh, but honestly, I was just sort of taken, like, I think Satoshi Kon's other movies do a lot about like 
they concern themselves a lot with uh, reality and the nature of sort of like feelings and thoughts and things like that. And I really admire Tokyo Godfathers for sort of stepping away from that and being much more straight up about like what the characters are thinking and feeling and experiencing. Um, and also I was reading about this a little bit more. I'm sorry if I take anybody's take with this, uh, but like that Satoshi Kon himself wanted like these sort of almost implausible coincidences to keep occurring to the characters where it is almost just like miniature Christmas miracle after Christmas miracle of like, Oh, this, you know, Hana, um, goes back to the bar she used to perform at and guess who's there a beat up uh gin and now they're reunited and now their adventure can continue and it's one like things like that over and over that kind of push uh i guess reality uh but it still falls within the confines of like this really heartwarming christmas movie which i inarguably think it is a christmas movie uh so um yeah i think that's my take Cool. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I wanted to bring up that point of, um, you know, it's directness. It's sort of like, uh, immediacy and to the pointedness because a lot of Satoshi Kon's other work, as we've discussed on uh, our episode about perfect blue, which we did actually cover in the, uh, non Milan boys pick series back from mid 2020. We went really in depth, I think on that discussion about, um, what it's blending of reality and fiction mean about, uh, the, um, the you know what what it says about the audience what it says about the characters what it says about film as a medium and sort of our expectations of it uh and of course like how that blends thematically with the content of the actual movie but um in this movie it feels like they want like satoshi Kon intended for things to be stepped a little bit further back not necessarily um abandoning like the fantasy elements of his movies but not, but also not leaning into them as like as a as a as a strong thematic element in many ways we might come to a different understanding as we talk about this movie but it feels less like he uh he i say but he and co-writer uh keiko nobomoto i believe um who uh recently passed just at the end of 2021 so r.i.p uh writer keiko nobomoto um what they wanted to do uh with that those coincidences etc feels less like a pivotal part of the movie and like crucial to understanding its themes and points and more like this is what we're going to use to advance the plot to put people in other people's way like you said uh seth about like when they magically happen to meet again at the same like it just so happens that somebody works at the club that hannah used to work at is you know finds Gin in the alleyway that that's just happens to be where he uh, fell and like that uh, an ambulance just happens to crash into the spot that they were just sitting at at the convenience store um, that you know sort of leads them into the next the final act of the movie uh, it like in that way I think this movie gets talked a lot about um, being less less Satoshi Kone than some of his other stuff um, but I think that like it makes up for not to make, not to say that like not having that sort of fantastical blending of reality and fiction, or at least like explicitly sort of thing uh, is, 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 is a fault of the movie. I, I really like how like much more approachable and much more like on the face of things, this movie is than uh, than other movies in his oeuvre, but um, like the use of those uh, 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 circumstances, those bizarre happenstances is 
um, to a much to an incredibly Satoshi Kone end, I think, about just like the universe, like the in, intentional universality of of empathy between characters in this movie about like how there is a necessity to them being around and with and sort of interacting with one another um, and how it's just not the same movie if you don't have those things. And how do we quickly get them together? We have coincidences. We have Christmas miracles, right? Thematically, it does work. It's not as like mind bending, I guess. Um uh, the other thing that I want to say about this movie, just like, and and I've seen this movie umpteen times as well, uh, and as a big fan of Satoshi Kon's work, it's interesting to, I think this was the last of his movies I ended up seeing. I believe I saw Millennium Actress before ever watching this, um, or Paprika, or sorry, yeah, I ended up seeing Paprika and and Millennium Actress before ever seeing this. I think this was the last uh, Satoshi Kon now now passed, um, the the last of his films that I ever got to see, uh, and like I'm trying to put myself in the same headspace as somebody who maybe has never seen the rest of his movies and maybe doesn't have that strong an attachment or like uh, a grounding in the rest of his filmmaking style, because this movie not only was it co-written with um, Nobumoto, but also, and I'm going to pull up the name just to be completely certain, but the um, animation director, uh, Kenichi Konishi was, uh, I, I, I would say like a big part of this movie because there's a certain secret sauce to how expressive the characters are. Um, and like a lot of the, what you might've seen in perfect blue or in paprika where like the world is shifting, the world is like, things are suddenly flesh. Things are suddenly non-existing. Things are suddenly like jump cut to other things, like the stylistic and visual flares are sort of transferred instead onto characters faces and onto like buildings, uh, like a certain pareidolia to these characters, to the, to the, to the world around it, to the world around them sort of. Um, there's a short feature at, I believe I was talking about it after the movie at the trial on, um, wherein they showed, uh, sort of real life comparisons between the alleyways of Tokyo uh, and the neighborhoods that they are, that the movie is set in and their renderings in 3d and 2d animation uh, and how closely they're aligned and like how much personality each one has and is given and how much more like they wanted to express certain things in certain pathways. Um, and I think that is where some of that, this is all actually building to something. I, I I feel that inside for how long I've been talking, but the sort of fantastical elements of the story and plot of other Satoshi Kon movies sort of, I think transfer just visually to faces, to movements, to actions, because however weird uh, things get in paprika and however much like body horror type stuff happens between that movie and perfect blue, mostly it's the world around people that's changing and shifting in this movie. People have like outright cartoonish expressions. I'm thinking of Hannah's berating of Gin in the hospital. Uh, to just just before that, um, story of the red and blue demons that she's playing up. Uh, to to make him seem like the good guy. Um, I'm thinking of the scene where Gin confronts the old deadbeat husband who's sort of gambled away all of his all of his money. Uh, and how like cartoonish that gets, and it goes from that to very 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 sincere human like like very very um. What's the, I'm not trying to say ticks, but like ve- there are mannerisms in the animation in the in facial animation in this movie that get really very um, relatable. You're you're able to impress a lot on these characters, uh, just facial basic facial animations. Uh, I, that, that's that's a really long way to say I think that the, that it is just as fantastical as some of these other movies, but just with different tools and t- to a slightly different end. Um, there's more that I could say about this movie, and I, I'm sure we'll get to uh, some of the, some larger points. Um, Oh man, uh, I think I, I don't know. I'm I'm all out of juice. I don't have a cute transition, but uh, I do have to transition to my good friend Cody. Nice, hey juice, something that 
a, a young child or even a baby might drink. Um, that's there's your segue. It's not perfect, but hey, it's it's something. Uh, we're hey, we're all just trying our best. Am I right? If uh, if this movie taught us one thing, anyways. Um, yeah. So I've seen Tokyo Godfathers uh, once before. Uh, <laughs> um, sort of, I, I guess, a bittersweet memory. I saw it um, at Showplace Icon in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, with uh, a handful of gentlemen here. Uh, as well as our, let's see, Aaron was probably there. Emily was certainly there. We got dinner. We we went to the movie, and that was on March 9th, 2020. And that was the last movie that myself uh, and and some of us saw in theaters before before COVID came to town. Um, so seeing it uh, at the Trilon last night was great and not weird at all. And I have nothing to reconcile or reckon with. All right. Harry's thoughts. Now I am fine. I, are you guys, is it hot in here? You guys are fine, right? Like, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, all that aside, um, I do. I, I like this movie a whole bunch as I, as I do with um, all of Satoshi Kon's other work as well. I've, I'm caught up on, on movies and on his movies and uh, paranoia agent. They're all great. And um, it, some of these thoughts aren't exactly new. Um, Seth and Jason articulated them super well already, but just kind of throwing mine onto the pile. Uh, I, I think for me, I, I me not having, grown up with Satoshi Kon or like only watching his stuff um, basically after I graduated from, from college. Uh, that's sort of like the vague timeline. Um, I, I see Tokyo Godfathers and I think, you know, it, it comes across as perhaps as most, I'm going to use the word straightforward and then immediately walk it back. Um, that's probably not even the right word to use. Um, but, you know, it, not to say that it's not like an emotionally and narratively deep work. It is definitely those things. It just, you know, it doesn't, like we've been saying, it doesn't really tinker with the fabric of physical and emotional reality in the ways that his other movies might, or in the ways that paranoia agent might do. Um, so yeah, I don't know. And, and maybe we'll discuss that sort of thing more as we watch and talk about the rest of the movies in the trial on series. But like my first, you know, I, I, I bet anybody like Tokyo Godfathers, this being the first one in the program seems like wholly appropriate. Um, my first Satoshi Kon movie was Paprika, which may also make sense if you have like a familiarity with, you know, a, a certain uh, American blockbuster that shares a lot of elements with that movie. Um, so, you know, familiar elements kind of easing you into into the mind of, of Kon and making you um, the proverbial Conehead uh, copyright trial of podcast. Um, but yeah, this is, I mean, this movie is, uh, it's, um, you know, it feels uh it feels dense, but not in a bad way. A lot happens over the course of a runtime. That's like barely, barely over an hour and a half, but it's, you know, a, a collection of slice of life sequences through the eyes of, you know, uh, characters who are, who are just kind of, kind of barely hanging on. And um, those experiences are filtered through an extremely unusual uh, inciting incident. You know, there's a baby, goo goo gaga. Um, the main, you know, the main three characters, they, you know, they, uh, and I was, Harry and I were talking uh, after the movie about how much we like this. Sorry if this gets into your takes, Harry, but um, how like the characters, they go through these trials together and then they kind of towards the middle have their own sort of thematically rich solo adventures and then they come back together. And that's just, I don't know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's structured really nicely. Uh, and it's all, it all feels heavy because it takes place during the winter holidays and it's also, 
jovial for those same reasons, right? Because these, you know, these things take place during the holidays and, uh, you know, the side quests that we go side quests, video games, uh, the side quests and the, the images we see, um, you know, they're ri- like just ridiculous enough, um, to like also be very memorable. Um, the, uh, for some reason, the image of, uh, Miyuki, is that her name? She's like, she's leaving the train through the window and like going through the snow and kind of like trudging along for some reason, that image really, um, stuck with me after after watching Tokyo Godfathers the first time perhaps because I've I'm a lifelong Minnesotan and I've done that same thing I'm not climbing out of the train but just hiking through snow for for no discernible reason other than like well everywhere else is is stuck so um I don't know there are, there are a lot of like images like that right that are that are um just kind of weird and and off-putting enough but they're you know they're all part of these tall tales that we're actually witnessing firsthand. And they culminate back into these moments when, you know, the rest of the city, the rest of these people are looking at these three characters and just kind of writing them off. And, you know, uh, among the other things that this movie is doing, you know, it maybe can be seen as sort of a, a, a gentle call for, you know, sympathy and, and understanding and, and open-mindedness, especially around the holidays. Uh, I feel like I've chalked a lot of movies lately up to that. And that's either because it's there or because, um, I want that sort of stuff to be there, or maybe both of those sentiments are true. Um, should say we had a good crowd at the Trilon. I'll wrap this up. We had a good crowd at the Trilon. We had a nice uh, full house. I think there was actually a baby in the theater. Did I imagine that? Like, I, I think there was an actual baby I, in the I theater. I think I heard, yeah. So, so it was weird because the surround sound kicked in a couple of times and it was like jarring how like realistic it sounded. But I think that was a legitimate real life baby in the right side of our screening of Tokyo Godfathers at Trilon, which cool yeah yeah um maybe john and barry uh you know it's it's the new sort of like sensory um uh, <laughs> sensory submergence um a you know, 6d that theater yeah, experience exactly. yeah that's um a baby that they hired uh it's an, a working acting baby that they hired to be in the crowd um to enhance the experience that's very cool um there's a guy uh, one row in front of us who just emitted the perfect like dad laughs um i think the first time i registered was when that um the the she's eating for two line came back around uh, and he gave just a big hearty um dad guffaw which which you love to hear um anyways did the classic uh, thing where it was like on a three second delay where like everybody yes. else got the joke and chuckled and then there was like a pregnant pause no pun intended and then he would be like <laughs> it was it was very charming <laughs> we, should, we should talk about this sometimes that pisses me off so much in the moment and then i'm like you know what i've seen this movie 10 times i <laughs> i'm just i'm just here with my friends it's part of the theater experience but i understand it really what you is mean. Plus, he was having such a fucking good time. I don't think I've ever laughed that loud at that part of that movie, despite laughing at that part of that movie. So I got to give it up. Yeah, we got to give it up. And uh, I guess speaking of yeah, pregnant pauses, um, I, I should really uh, stop talking because I, I, didn't, I didn't tell you guys this, but when I was um, uh, outside... As I was coming back to my apartment, I, you know, I, I told you, told you guys before we came on mic, I came back from Target and I come through there. There's, there's this baby just sitting, uh, sitting by the door, just an, a, an abandoned baby. It's like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do here, but, um, I just, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to name this guy. Uh, the name Harry popped into my head. So, um, you know, I, I got him, got him right here. Uh, he's actually, he's, um, getting closer and closer to the microphone. I think he thinks it's a toy. Um, all right, little Harry, this is, this is not a toy. This is serious business, but, um, I don't know. He's, he's opening his mouth. I uh, can't wait to, to see what'll happen. Maybe this will be good content. We'll find out. Uh, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Harry. The, the mic is yours. Here you go. Goo goo gaga. 
Well, it can't be worse than our usual content, Cody. Thank you so much for that transition, that avant-garde transition. I think our transitions are getting more and more ambitious, which I appreciate, um, especially because I never planned for them. Um, yeah, I think that you all characterized this really well. Um I, and actually got at a lot of the different sort of uh, bullet points that I wanted to discuss. Jason, I really liked what you had said about the sort of, I would call it like quasi-mystical, quasi-Christmas uh, serendipity um, that occurs throughout this movie. Um, I think it's really important that you noted that most of it is just characters running into one another and crossing paths over and over again in sort of like funny, serendipitous ways. Um I, uh, I've seen this movie several times as well. Um, like I said, I was there with, or like Cody said, I was there with Cody um, before quarantine. I've watched it a few times since then. Um, it's a Satoshi Kon movie that I, I have come to appreciate more and more the older I get, I think. I think that um, we've all sort of talked around this idea that it is um, generally regarded as perhaps the most disposable of Satoshi Kon's movies or perhaps the one that doesn't fit with its filmography. Um I think that's easy to see. I also wonder, and I've always wondered, if that's a part of sort of the demographic that usually gets really into Satoshi Kon movies and when they get into them. Um, for instance, me getting into Satoshi Kon, uh, excuse me, Kon as a teenager, who is also obsessed with the sort of like very what I thought at the time was was bleeding edge, edgy sort of animation explorations of. Um, identity and existentialism. Uh, so like Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue was like the perfect entry point for somebody who is really into Evangelion and Serial Experiments Lane and Ghost in the Shell and Ergo Proxy and that sort of wave of anime that was very self-serious about exploring um, what it meant to have a self and to be in the world. Um, oh, you mean but Elfin I think Lead? That, yeah, Elfin, El, yeah. Uh, that one too. I actually didn't watch that one when I was a kid. Uh, oh wow! It was Hold definitely it above us. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, but I I think that this this movie is is really one of his most um, realized in a lot of ways. In it's pursuing something different than all that, which is I think why people sort of see it as is outside. But it's really more um, communally focused and more interested in. Um, people and a, a city and a, a group and how we affect one another than it is in individuality and sort of exploring the um, laws or illusions of self, which I think is really interesting, right? Like I, th I think that Satoshi Kon applying his viewpoint to the sort of like collective gives us a really like, I think it's, it's Satoshi Kon's most humane film and it's his most sort of like, um, I, I would say sort of like externally interested film, which is kind of makes it very important, I think. And in sort of like, I, I think that this is where we get to see a lot of the things that we see Satoshi Kon only sort of play with in other works explored more fully. Um, I think that this is pretty unequivocally his best character film. Um, I think that, that Gin, Hana and Miyuki are all like, extremely great characters um, that are very memorable and among his best. And they get a chance to sort of shine in this movie in a way that I think characters and particularly non-main characters don't necessarily in his other movies. Um, it's also a, it's a really fascinating work examining sort of Satoshi Kon's interest in religion and um, 
in in this case, obviously Christmas, but like this becomes a Christmas movie without being a religious movie and kind of becomes a movie about what Christmas or what holidays can mean in absence of a like pure religious context. And I think that that's really um, a, a really great statement to make, especially coming from somebody who is so interested in Japan itself. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is like one of my favorite city movies like full stop, not just animated, but sort of like, I think it's, it's like a really great Tokyo movie. I think it's like about what it is to be a member of a community in a city um, and what that can mean. Um, And I, I really appreciate it for that. And I can't wait to talk about that. And I think it's one of his warmest movies. Um, And so, yeah, I think that, that for that reason, it's an interesting one to start with, right? Because it's a Christmas movie. It sort of doesn't lock into place with the rest of his filmography, um, which is also itself sort of as um, stark as it is because he only made four movies before he passed away, right? Like, I think that a Satoshi Kon who got to have a full career, this might have been more in keeping with another strain of his filmography that we didn't get to see developed. And so yeah. it's also sort of a mournful movie, at least for me, right? I think that of all of his movies, this one sort of is the most what could have been for me i think even more than something like paprika which paprika to me feels like such a realization of the sort of themes that he had been grappling with throughout his career but i would have loved to see more of these right i want to i want to like watch satoshi kone make these like auteur driven character pieces that are so locked into communities and so locked into the the character studies that um it's it's really a shame that we didn't see more of it but it, it he at least gave us this which is a really great movie i think yeah it is weird to think that like i think when you use the term disposable that was dead on i think the way that people talk about this movie is like it's not like the others but it's still good you know like yeah well if especially you're missing because this, it's you're a holiday movie Right. Because it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's his Christmas movie. And and there's the sort of like unspoken implication that it's like nice for around the holidays, but you don't really have to like it's not a must. Yeah. But but at the same time, like even if you're arguing up at that and saying like, no, it's it's well worth like it belongs, it fits, it's it's like totally worthy kind of thing. You're still talking about 25 percent of the man's feature length output. You know, it's just like having any sort of conversation around this feels like it has more weight than it would in almost any other career. Like can't say this about, uh, you know, you can't say it about, um, Hayao Miyazaki, let alone all of studio Ghibli, right? Because there's 20 feature films under his belt or whatever. And you know, another, another few, at least on top of that, that weren't by him. So if you criticize one, if you think that, you know, tales from earth sea sucks, well, that wasn't Miyazaki. Well, that was, you know, larger Ghibli. But if you say something about, Satoshi Kone works any of them like Paprika is your coming least for favorite. your ass. <laughs> uh Blake Hester is on notice for not liking Paprika very much. Uh no, I I I would personally maybe we should talk about rankings later but um I do want to talk about uh that um the idea of sort of where it points its focus and how it like sharpens different tools to get there because there's like Harry was saying this is less uh this is way more of a character piece than like we talked about perfect blue um, on this podcast before, and we'll talk about the other films in, uh, in Satoshi Kon's uh, filmography. And I'm sure that we'll talk about much, much larger statements that, uh, you know, they're making about tech, about technology and like the way that uh, whole cultures interact and the way that, uh, you know, people communicate over time and, and stuff. This feels way more 
focused. I'm sure that you could extrapolate and build a read um, to almost any point from this movie, but uh, it just on having seen it so many times, it feels like Harry was saying more focused on individual or excuse me on, on like individuals within a group, we'll say rather than like, you know, individuals as like synecdoche for movements or for, uh, you know, whole happenings or undercurrents of culture. It feels like these are people who represent the place that they're, uh, that they're from, that they are and not just like, I guess what I'm trying to get to is like the way that it sets up different segments of, the world different like segments of people we see just to lay the groundwork uh we see uh the three homeless folk uh interacting with each other and sort of like clashing about their you know what keeps them in this position we see them clashing with regular with quote-unquote regular people uh with people of means with people who are not uh you know living in poverty and we see them interact with the Yakuza, with the Colombian drug cartels. We see them interact with, you know, um, uh, suicidally ill uh, women who stole babies. We, we just see like through the prism of these people, of these people who, and I think there's a Satoshi Kon quote that he was talking about how these people, um, how the homeless people are like, they are like very one with the city because it's like, like the city itself is their home. They don't have one concrete address. Therefore, like the entirety of the city is their home. And that feels like it's resonant, but um, just like the, I want to talk about the lens through which it, it focuses on these characters and how it maybe changes when it points in different directions. There's, there's one specific point I'd like to get to um, with that. Uh, but th- that's, that's our launching platform. Um, Harry. Yeah. I really liked that I really like the idea of a of a prism of characters, right? Like I think that this is a really socially focused movie, and I think it, it's it's really clear and really resonant and really sort of like an overarching bird's eye view that this is a movie about home, right? It's about communities. It's about having a place where you belong, and it's sort of interesting that like I don't know why I'm I'm sort of like talking as if I'm um, arguing with this phantom uh, who doesn't like this movie, but like I feel like there's also this idea that this is not as thematically locked in as Satoshi Kon's other works. It's not capital uh, A about something in the way that a lot of his are. But I, I would argue with that, right? Because like this is a movie that literally starts with a sermon about what it means to be part of something, right? About what it means to belong and have a home. And it's being given to homeless people on Christmas. And then we see all of these people who are sort of, they they come from all different walks of life, but they are all fundamentally interlocked and intertwined with one another, right? It's like they all find this redemption ultimately, but also complication and also shame and also um, pain through and with one another, right? Like none of these characters' stories happen in abstract. None of them happen on their own. Maybe they all have their backstories that brought them here, but now that they're out on the streets, all three of these homeless people, like they are a part of each other's lives. They are each other's found family, right? And it's really fascinating the way that this movie intertwines that pain and complication, right? Where you could argue that the, the whole plot of this movie wouldn't happen without Hana sort of like taking the baby under her wing um, of her own accord. But also that that same action is what sort of like creates this very serendipitous um, quasi-religious sort of redemption arc for everyone involved, right? Is that Hana is a person who never felt like she could be the person she wanted to be. She never had a home of her own. She tries to make one using this baby and the attempt to create a community where there isn't something there ends up sort of completing what all of these people need, right? Like from the from the homeless people to the Yakuza to the Colombian um 
drug dealer to our drug cartel to the um, middle class, quote unquote, family that that uh, originally kidnapped the baby. Right. Like they all find what they need through each other and through this sort of like community churn that they become a part of. And so um, you're you're so right. Jason, right? It's like this is a movie that that is is so character focused, but it it's just as focused on the um sort of porous boundaries between those characters, right? And the ways in which we really touch one another and intersect with one another. Um like we don't see we we only hear stories about who Hana and, and Gin were before they were homeless people. Those parts of them are informing what happens next, but the people that they are to each other are who they are, right? And in a really great moving way, I think. And so that sort of stuff makes all that follows about family and shame, right? Where uh, particularly, um, obviously, Miyuki's character, but all of the characters, right? It's it's eventually revealed that like basically none of them uh, needed to be homeless, quote unquote, in as far as... Um, uh, financially or, or what have you, or having somebody else so much as they were motivated by shame, right. To sort of like distance themselves from the communities that they were originally a part of because they didn't feel good enough about who they were. And that ends up being sort of a foil to, uh, the, uh, man and woman who ended up stealing the baby from the hospital in the first place, right? It's like they were trying to recreate this community that wasn't there because they thought that would make them something that they didn't think they were. And so it's it's a really fascinating look into how sort of all of these different people who come from different places and, and very different situations, they are sort of all motivated by and scarred by um, similar, if not sort of like um, mirrored pains and traumas, right? And I think that that's at the heart of where the empathy comes from here, right? Is is that we can we can learn to recognize through this journey, this sort of like understanding that that everyone is ashamed of who they are relative to who they want to be sometimes, and that um, finding a community that can accept that shame and uh, find the worth in you anyway is so important. Right, I think that those are like the big messages that this is playing with, and I think that um, thinking about the characters as sort of prismatic, the way that you brought it up, Jason, is a really good way to start to like peek at that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I, I guess coming at it from a different angle, I you know, Jason asking or putting forth the prompt about focus, and um, something Seth said really got me thinking. Um, the you know the ways in which this this story and all these stories sort of like happily coincidentally um you know the the narrative beats kind of bump into each other that's how i felt like watching this movie again i mean everything ultimately stems back to like what what you were talking about airy um like the it all comes back to family it all comes back to um like parenting um the the three main characters obviously having different sort of relationships with family and um, parents, in some cases, being parents, um, you know, again, with his own familial um, troubles that we gradually learn more and more uh, through sort of Hana poking and prodding him uh, and just, you know, the world kind of chipping away at uh, rather, you know, the course of this, these couple days kind of chipping away at his armor. Hana uh, wants to to be a parent um, and Miyuki uh, having her own sort of deep seated issues with with her parents and her family. And like even the times when the, that's what's so great about the um 
you know, the, the adventures that they go on, <laughs> I keep calling them adventures, they're adventures, fuck it. Uh, the adventures that they go on when they're together. Um, and then like, they're sort of like solo adventures when they, they fracture and, and the, the group sort of splits apart. Like even when these experiences are not, uh, you know, directly about them or about family or like reconciling with, you know, that the sort of scary cloud of being a parent or being part of a family. Um, you know, they save the, the Yakuza bus from that car and I'd be like, immediately they're transported to uh, a wedding, right? Like, the, and we, we get like, even just in the couple minutes that we're with that story, this just like gestured at friction. And so, you know, it, it's great that, you know, this movie is so, and that this, um, uh, narrative uh, uh, ensemble, I guess, you know, th- that it is so prismatic and it's all just sort of refracting outward the, you, like these fragments of this idea of like family, what plays into it. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. This movie is, is, is all the richer for it, not just for fleshing out, you know, over the course of the runtime, like what these three characters are going through, but just like what, what the surround, you know, what the surrounding environment is going through, what the climate is like, what this, what the city, I mean, Harry saying city is a character, uh, it hits all the right buttons. Um, but like we, we learn how this, this city feels about, um, like being part of a family as well. And that's, um, that's what Christmas is all about. Charlie Brown. Yeah. Well, and, and to talk about the sort of like cone of it all right is that like formally that's so well reflected right it's like jason had said earlier it's there is this is such a city movie and they they took such meticulous notes and and takes took such great pains to recreate real parts of tokyo and to really depict a city on christmas night the way that they did or and the following days right and i think that that's that's deeply thematically resonant with what they're attempting to convey here right this idea that like the reason why the the characters keep running into each other and these sort of like wild coincidences keep happening is because that's the point right it's supposed to feel like this city is actually a very small place and it's a place where we all live and it's a place where all of our stories are occurring at once which means that we're all a part of these stories right this is a um at the beginning of this movie all three of these characters are people who have run from their communities of origin, right? They've, they've sort of like felt rejected by and disposed of by their found are their original families, their original communities. And they are, um, they are outcasts by their own sort of, uh, decisions. And because they feel like they can't be anything else. I mean, with Hana, it's sort of obvious, right? She's literally a, a trans woman in Tokyo, which is a very hard thing to be. Uh, and she was, sort of like her temper got the best of her and she was thrown out of her nightclub where she had found something like a community. Later on, she goes back to that community and finds out that the thing she thought was a big deal literally just wasn't. Like they were all just waiting for her to come back anyway. But she also lo- lost her lover, right? Who is probably the only guy who really made her feel like she was the person she thought she was. Um, meanwhile, Miyuki stabs her cop dad and has this terrible relationship with him um she yeah she's a queen she's the best um but uh and and gin sort of like he's he's really interesting right because we don't really understand where his gambling debts came from or where his compulsive gambling came from but it's like very clearly visually and thematically reflected by the 
family that we see later on originally kidnapped the baby, right? Like that guy also ran up his gambling debts. It's highly implied, at least from my point of view, my whole sort of read on all of that for both Gin and that guy um, is that they felt that they weren't equal to uh, creating the family that they wanted to have, right? They felt like they couldn't be fathers. They couldn't be um, breadwinners. Uh, Gin wasn't able to run his shop the way he wanted to or be successful. And so they turned to gambling as this sort of like dream escape where they could become what they wanted to be. Um, all of these characters are running away from that community, right? But lo and behold, they all fall straight from one community into another one, right? Like these characters can't help but be a part of the world. They can't help but be a part of one another. And ultimately we see that that works out, right? We see that that when you commit to this community that you find yourself a part of and you you respect it and you make it a part of your life or rather you acknowledge it as a part of your life, things start to happen, right? Like things start to come together for you. Um, so that's why I think like even, even the interpersonal dynamics speak to that really well, right? Because like when these characters are at each other's throats, um, as they often are to sort of like create dysfunction and uh, narrative tension, the way that they try to disparage one another is by denying each other the things that they want to be, right? Like that, that is when Hana is misgendered by her companions. That is when Hana reads again the riot act about how he's a good for nothing. He's living garbage. He never could have been a father or a husband, Um that is when they call Miyuki a little girl who's lost and on her own and, and needs a father, right? And and that's sort of like that denial, it sort of like speaks to the contrast, right? Which is that in reality or at their best and, and by the end of this movie, these are people who really have given one another those things, right? Who have really made space for one another to be the people they want to be and self-determine in each other's lives. And that's sort of what a community is. And I think that this movie's like really moving um, humane point is ultimately that like that is sort of what it means to be a part of a city. It's what it means to be a part of a society. It's sort of what we owe to one another. You know what I mean? I think that mm -hmm. this movie has a really, really powerful social conscience that is is even above and beyond its treatment of the homeless, which already it's like maybe the best movie about homelessness that I've seen. Or I mean, I haven't seen every movie, obviously, but it's it's really good at that as well. And I think that that just all goes to show you how it's like it's really thinking about like people and what we provide to one another and, and what we should do for one another. Yeah, there's the assumptions that the movie has you make about these characters by using shorthand of being homeless, uh, by by using shorthand of being, you know, uh, stage performers, about being gamblers, about like all the things that you learn about these characters before you actually learn them, including our main characters, um, uh, Hana, Gin, and Miyuki. Um, like it doesn't start out with them meeting. It doesn't start out with them, uh, you know, X, Y, whatever it like they're at least six months in as their current unit, I think by a piece of dialogue between, I think Gin and Miyuki about like, uh, just before he says it's the ones who say that they can go home anytime they want that never do. Um, I think he talks about how she's been on, on the lamb for six months from her family. But I, uh, I think that like one of my favorite things about specifically how this movie sets up is, um, that, those like s social signifiers of who these people are, are just there to be sort of broken down, right? Like you said, they're not there uh, because of like bad 
gambling habits. They're not there because they're, you know, criminals or whatever, all these societal assumptions that we've been taught to make about, uh, about the less fortunate, about people in poverty, about people who are homeless, uh, are not like directly undercut by like, oh, well, this person actually used to be a, uh, you know, a, a local magistrate and just fell from grace or whatever. It's not anything that cheesy or heavy handed. Like these were people who were happy, who were only sent to their current position in life by, um, like you said, of feelings of rejection or feelings of like not belonging anymore where they were, right? Which precipitated other actions or circumstances that led them to where they are. And we don't get every single piece of, of every puzzle, but we get enough to sort of put those things together. And I think the assumptions that it's making there mirror their own assumptions uh, of, and I'm, I want to tap Seth for this because it's something that we were talking about in the car on the way home. And it's like a two, three minute drive uh, on, from our apartment to, to the trial line. But uh, we were talking about like how each of the main characters and you could probably extrapolate this to the whole cast, but each of the three main characters um, assumptions about family and about like what role they have in family, in community more broadly are defined and sort of like there, there are some, for example, Hannah uh, sort of like her maternal instinct is what's giving her drive to, take care of Kyoko and to grab, uh, to like, not just immediately hand the baby over to the police. It is, it is her assumption that to be a, to be a caretaker, to be a provider, uh, she needs to be able to be a mother and to feed and to, uh, you know, every, all, all these other expectations that she's put on herself. Um, and some of which won't come to fruition. Uh, it, like text really makes that the butt of a joke, which there's one of my last discussion points is going to be like how uncomfortable sometimes the, the joking and uh, like uh, 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 joviality between these characters can be because it's like in a 2022 context, a little bit on the line. But um, my point and question is like, to what extent Seth, did you notice those, um, those assumptions that these characters make about their place and about what they need to be f- to make a family to what extent did you see them like broken down? I guess in the case of Hannah, it's like she's able to be a matriarch and a powerful, strong figure within her own little trio. Um, she doesn't need to be able to take care of uh, um, uh, of, of of a child uh, in the way that other mothers might have might be able to. She's but she has a role where she is right. Um, so like given those backstories, given what these characters want and sort of what they're looking for, if anything, what, to what extent did you see those, um, those, those, those assumptions being built just to, uh, I guess, have them like undercut. I guess I go back to Harry's point about, uh, it really was just breaking down, uh, expectations that people have put on themselves, whether socially or communally or just, whatever, uh, where it is really, um, I'm trying to, I think all three characters, like none of them are in their position from, I mean, the influenced by external forces, but like mm-hmm. none of them is being punished by being homeless. You know, none of them like, uh, uh, Gin was not, you know, chased out of town by like a loan shark or something like that, or Hana, chased out of town by, you know, the, uh, the vendor she threw a a drink on, like, wasn't some, you know, violent murderer out to get her, uh, or Miyuki's father, as far as we can tell, other than being a cop, like, wasn't abusive to her, uh, or something like that. And it, he he even takes out a, a newspaper ad to get her to come home. Right. 
Right. And so it is very much this like self-imposed identity uh, or, or role that people have to play uh, that sort of uh, locks uh, these characters into their, into their current state. Uh, I guess there, there is something, there is possibly something there about, you know, like uh, everybody sort of creates their own hell kind of thing is, is Satoshi Kon implying that like <laughs> everyone's personal hell involves some kind of homelessness or lack of community. Uh, but even that has a community of other people stuck, you know, in that, in that personal purgatory. Um, I think, I think I want that question to be answered if you guys have takes, but before that, when we were talking earlier, uh, Harry, you made a point earlier. Um, you made a lot of points and I'm not going to be able to remember exactly where it happened, but, um, Oh, you talked about when you first sort of became introduced to Satoshi Kon, you had this very sort of, um, protective uh you know feelings about it because it was sort of high-minded and it questioned uh uh, his movies had a lot of like psychological depth and philosophical depth uh and a point i wanted to bring up then and it kind of goes in the face of the point i just made was i think one of the things that stood out for me because i saw tokyo godfathers first and then i saw uh, perfect blue and then i saw paprika i haven't seen um millennium actress i haven't seen paranoia agent so this was my first cone movie and i was uh i guess like the metaphor allegory whatever device i came up with in my head was like if somebody watched this movie and they read it completely straight like everything shown is exactly how they interpret it uh like would they get it. And I'm using air quotes for the people listening at home. Uh, and I think like that is one of the things that stands out to me is this movie focuses a lot on community and like a person's role in relation to a city, to a community, to other people. And it's all external uh, versus, you know, ideas of the self and reality are very internal and like you build and it kind of even goes to the point you said about like side characters in other cone movies not really having a lot of depth or development well part of that is because the nature of you know our own self-perception of reality is that we have all the depth as the protagonists and main characters of our stories the other people they have their motives only as far as they're explained to us or demonstrated to us and that kind of gives like a nice meta quality as the audience as well. But um, all of that to go back to your original question, uh, Jason. Yeah. was uh, like, I think the roles that all the characters wanted to fulfill, like it really was just a self-imposed block from fulfilling these roles. That was just kind of like, broken open through their interactions through the narrative of the story but it almost was like it a nice bookend a nice like narrative reframing where it's like oh yeah you know the end is the beginning is the end like you always had the tools you always had the perspective uh the only thing that's changed is your experience uh and you know your collective experience with other people that help you understand the world you're living in 
that's that's exactly what I was looking for. So thank you for parsing whatever question I had. Uh, t- two things. That was great, Seth. Thank you. Um, first of all, like I, I really love the way that you sort of recharacterize the external internal thing because like that really speaks to me where we're like I think that like I mean I think to be perfectly frank Perfect Blue is still my favorite Satoshi Kon movie obviously it it always will be um it's also like a very yeah it's it's great um it's a very like quintessential like angsty teenager movie you know, and I, I think that to a to a lesser extent, Paprika is too. Um, Millennium Actress kind of falls in the middle of that spectrum, if you want to call it. But like, it was very interested in the things I was very interested in as like a self absorbed teenager, right? Where it was like, who am I? Like, how do I know who I am? And like, am I just lying to myself? Are there, you know, whereas <laughs> now it's like thirteen discussing this with himself at high yeah. school. Whereas now I'm like, I'm more who like, who am Boy, I? I hope that. Everybody is is warm enough to survive the the winters in Minneapolis, and like, boy, I wish we didn't have cops that killed black people indiscriminately. You know, it's like now those are the things that matter to me uh, considerably more, and I feel like this is a movie that's really interested in that. Um, and I think that like the way that you characterize these these characters as as like locked out of community by their own sort of like shame is really key to exploring what I think that this movie is, is ultimately trying to do where like, I think that's true. Right. But I, I think that like it is internally imposed in the sense that like, it is not a literal sort of barrier between them, but it is also socially imposed. Right. Like we see many, many, um, uh, like points of evidence in that favor. Right. Where like, um, not only are they, homeless right off the bat and constantly reminding each other of their homelessness and of their relative worthlessness. They say multiple times to one another that like, we have no value. We are a burden on society. That is their starting point. Mm -hmm. Um, But also like society itself continually reminds them of that, right? Like they're kicked out of a um, convenience store for smelling too badly and driving off customers. Um, The people on the train car react to them very poorly. Uh, Teenagers beat up again uh, in the homeless encampment, uh, which is, by the way, like a thing that actually happens sometimes in, in Tokyo. It, it sucks really, really bad, but it's important to uh, depict that, I guess. Um, and, and so like, it, it's important to note that like the, the shame that's, um, that's perpetuated here or that, that is imposed here is something that the movie is taking on explicitly. Right. It's like, it's about not only sort of like you have to, um, break through that but also like remember that that we as a society are doing this to people right like that's the sort of very kurosawa-esque social message of this movie is that even the the people who are quote unquote like uh upstanding right like the the relatively middle class family that ultimately steals the baby or whatever like everyone is trying to be this version of themselves that they think are worthy of being a part of society right like there is this sense all of a sudden that that they're that your duty is to fulfill something like you have to be a certain way it's almost back to the internal external thing right it's like it's not just your sort of external ability to help other people and to be a part of other people's lives it has to be some sort of like internal inalienable and unacquirable trait of self where these characters have all gotten to a place where they think they are sort of like categorically homeless in that like there is something inside of them that makes them incapable of having value that they are just bad people and this movie demonstrates really um 
poignantly, I think, the ways in which both that is not true, that there is no such thing as a burden on society, that that is a contradiction in terms. It's impossible for that to be the case, um, even for homeless people, right? Just like in real life. Um, But also that like the reason why people feel that way is because of what we're doing to them, right? It's those pressures. It's like the ways in which there is that expectation that people can't live up to that gets them locked in this cycle of self-flagellation, basically. Um, And I I think that the way that this movie sets that up is so interesting, right? Where it gives the sort of people who are perceived as the most worthless in society um, this contact with the thing that is sort of like symbolizes the ultimate in society, right? Like this newborn baby that is that is repeatedly conflated with Jesus symbolically in the movie. And uh she's she is this ultimate like she is Hannah continually refers to her as, as a messenger from God. She is the sign of hope. She is like the bright tomorrow that ev- everyone is sort of like working towards. And ultimately the movie ends up saying like she needed all of these people. She needed this entire community right? Like that's why the movie's called Tokyo Godfathers in the first place, right? It's like, it turns out that like in order to build that tomorrow, in order to build that person that everybody cares about, that everybody values, it takes everyone. It doesn't just take parents. It doesn't just take an exclusive community. It takes the entire society that, that is brought up around it. It takes a village. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Or in this case, it takes Tokyo, which is, uh, uh, used to be a village a very, very long time ago and is now something much larger. Much larger, indeed. I have no transition. Yeah. Other than, I guess, maybe this is all like getting into uh, try uh, me attempting to pull this full circle, but like, not that this is an issue that needs solving, but just like why this is seen as a more quote unquote disposable Satoshi Kon movie, and like maybe be, because this is antithesis is too strong a word, but just you know the things that um, that you guys have been talking about, the sort of you know instead of the the core external journey like the the crux of this whole thing being you know uh we're, we're overcoming these these newfound obstacles in a very like um like visual like highly stylized highly visualized fashion um you know instead this movie is about these people sort of removing removing those walls that they thought existed but like really don't which is a less I don't know. Uh, I'm going to use a word I feel weird about, but like it's it's a less makes for a less sexy movie. You know, like the the conflicts are less exactly. You know, like, yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, maybe that. I mean, I if if, a pr- if you yeah, want to be like really uh, like open about, it's because like when I'm 15 years old, I feel very intelligent and cool for loving Perfect Blue, but I feel kind of corny for loving Tokyo Godfathers. It's exactly the Christopher Nolan effect, ironically, right? Where it's like everybody's favorite movie is Inception when they're 14 years old because it makes them feel like a fucking genius to understand that shit, right? But it's like, hey, it turns out that like when you're an adult, sometimes movies that are like homeless people are are people too, and we should all take care of one another and stop judging one another that's maybe a better message or maybe a more important or, or uh, prescient one. 
One would think. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, I hadn't seen Perfect Blue until, oh God, uh, midnight screening at the Uptown Theater, RIP. That hurts. Um, but uh, I I mean, I, I saw and loved Black Swan when I was 18, and I, Same, I bet I would have felt <laughs> <laughs> similarly about Perfect Blue had I known it existed. But yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, the, the, the journey is, it's, you know, it's, it's softer. There are no projected sort of realities um, or projections against our reality other than, you know, maybe arguably... Um, Hana sort of floating down to earth at the, at the end of Tokyo, at, uh, at the end of that climactic sequence. But um, yeah. And like the, the stakes are, are relatively low here um, as they are. And I mean, just like thinking through these, I mean, I mean, <laughs> low stakes. I mean, the loss of self <laughs> is not like uh, uh, low uh, as far as stakes go by any means, but it's not like, you know, none of, none of these are like Marvelized plot lines. Obviously, I, I need to wash my mouth out after using that word uh, on this <laughs> during this the Satoshi Kone theme. Um, yeah, it, it's just you know that journey is expressed differently. Um, yeah, uh, softer, I guess, is a word I'll, I'll come back to. But yeah, I don't know. Not that that needs solving. Maybe maybe some of this will also come back uh, as we talk through more of those movies. But like, I don't know. All, all that is to say. You fellas ramped up to um, a nice little minor breakthrough for me, which I, I already love this movie anyway. So that's just um, I, icing on the the Christmas cake. They have cakes at Christmas. That checks out. They do. Um, in Japan, they have Christmas cakes. Uh, I, I, I'm glad that you said that, Cody, because it too, for me, has had like this discussion alone has had like a really... <laughs> it really, like I said, it sucks to go into a movie and know that like, oh, people, people put this one in the bottom... 25% of his movies. Uh, I, I know I already said this, but like the fact that we've gotten to where we've gotten with this discussion is already, I think like one of the stronger discussions of like that phenomenon than I've seen almost anywhere else. Like most people say, despite it not being like mind blowingly, incredibly complex, it's still really good. And it's like, eh, let, let's, let's talk about how good it is rather than qualifying it against like, Oh, is it going to make me question my reality? Does that have to be our metric of success for these movies? Um, did you have something else there, Cody? I did, and we don't have to do it, but I, I know we, um, you know, maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do personal rankings at the end of all this. Um, but I did, I mean, as far as far as our, our favorite means of uh, judging things and um, utilizing metrics go, uh, Satoshi Kon's filmography sorted on Letterboxd in order of highest average user rating to lowest. I don't know if that's something we want to bust out now. Um, uh, does that do sound it. like a notey? Should we, should we do that right now? Uh, we, th- I get this, this will count as like my final, like stray miscellaneous okay. thought, um, separate from the noties, but, um, so yeah, from, uh, we'll just, we'll do the four films plus paranoia agent. Um, so going from top to bottom, we have perfect blue coming in at 4.4. Um, you sort of expect it, uh, up next paranoia agent at 4.2, uh, just edging out, um, well, I'll get to that, but millennium actress barely, uh, gets the, the third, uh, the third slot. It's at 4.1 followed very closely by Tokyo Godfathers, which is also at 4.1. And then finally, uh, letterboxd also, uh, likes paprika the least, um, at 4.0. So yeah, just, I guess a, pr- a primer, we'll, we'll see where we all land, but that's, that's what the boxed thinks. That is interesting because you got to assume that most people may, maybe there's something to, do you think more people have seen Perfect Blue or Paprika? Because I feel like by the time that anybody was hearing about Perfect Let's Blue, check. at least stateside, yeah. it was mostly in context of like, oh, this guy's other incredibly good movie. Anyway, I'm sure I'm sure that yeah. it's like flattened out. It, it's interesting to know that Paprika, the one that I've 
probably heard the most about um, has been has been flattened out by the letterbox popularity. Well, rankings. I mean, there's also like, you have to keep in mind the politics of letterboxd and like the mentality that goes into reviewing. It's like, how do you give, what are you, what are you doing? Not giving Tokyo Godfathers at least a four, like, who are you? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, what, what's wrong with it? Asshole. Like what? It's, it's too funny and good and pure and, uh, delightful for you. The characters are too d- well, uh, illustrated and three dimensional. Fuck off. I'm doing it again. I'm uh, fighting the phantom guy. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't exist, um, except in your own head. Stay tuned for more Satoshi Kon discussions. Uh, Paprika, for what it's worth, is the second most popular uh, of Kon's films on Letterboxd. Paranoia Agent is, uh, as you might expect, the least frequently logged of the five. Cool, cool. Uh, Seth, I had one more discussion point I wanted to bring up. Discreet, um, was there anything else you wanted on that to comment on that point? I saw your hand up for a sec there. Uh, just all of the, all of this kept reminding me of oddly enough a crossover with uh, Batman, um, the the character, not the movie, but in the movie the Riddler is the bad guy, and in the comics, there's been a an occasion where the Riddler deduces Batman's secret identity, uh, and they. Uh, because the new Matt Matthew Reeves, the Batman is the zeitgeist. People are talking about this character and there's this interaction in the panels in the comic books in Batman hush, uh, where Batman is confronting the Riddler. Uh, and basically the Riddler says, I know who you are. Like, I know who's under the mask. So like now you're under my thumb. Uh, and, Batman responds, what time is it when an elephant sits on a fence? And uh, the Riddler says, like, what? And he's and he repeats it. And he's like, what time is it when an elephant sits on a fence? And then the Riddler's like, oh, it's time to get a new fence. Everybody knows that. It's worthless. And then that's exactly the uh, the tool that Batman uses where he's just like, exactly, you know, like, uh, a, to you, knowledge that everybody has is worthless. And so you have this great secret that only you know, that only you understand, and that gives it immense value. And you just want to share it with everybody. And then Riddler's like, oh God, like I, he got me, I'm owned. Uh, that is kind of how I feel about like this Satoshi Kone ranking thing where, you know, like all of the, the cinephiles, the film heads love to, uh, dunk on Tokyo Godfathers. Again, we're talking about the straw man. (laughs) That is the faceless. It's that uh, phantom, man. We're going to have it is the the phantom, um, saying like, Oh, everybody understands what Tokyo Godfather is saying. Tokyo Godfathers is saying, therefore, it's worthless. You know, it has nothing to offer me. Uh, and we are here to say just like, uh, the characters, it does have value. You know, I am here to say phantom guy, meet me outside the trial on next Sunday at about 8 PM. I'll kick your ass right into 33rd street. Um, incredible point because that like, again, I feel like we can champion this movie a little bit. We can be the, the alternative podcast about Tokyo Godfathers, listen to another one. And they're going to talk about Christmas way more than we did. They're going to go way less interesting places than we did, but the less interesting place I want to go. And I feel like this is, um, uh, not a minefield of a discussion at all. Uh, not just like put it under you guys' feet, but like, um, the thing that always strikes me about this movie and has me like in a real zone of, um, 
how do other people that I'm watching this feel uh, is sort of the way that these characters talk to one another, specifically the main cast, the trio, Gin, Hana, and Miyuki. They are really, really brusque, really sharp with one another um, about all manner of different things. Uh, they, at least on a few occasions, misgender Hana directly. Um, they use slurs and uh, other, you know, offensive terms for uh, for trans people um, and you know people of uh, non tr- non cisgender uh, representation and, and identity. Um, they uh, there's a point at which Gin, um, in an, in a fight with Miyuki, uh, grabs her breasts and says like the you know you're you're not a kid anymore kind of thing. Like these are easily I think it's easy to be off put by these moments because one it's it's anime and it gets a bad rap for having you know suggestive content to begin with uh but two the more and more i've seen these movies these feel like um like essential parts of the movie like in a weird way that i'm like that it has always been a little bit hard to defend but that i know in, internally i do defend and i just want to p- toss it to the group to say like is is this like their way of taking some of that shame we've been talking about some of that like um, some of that self-flagellation that the world forces upon them, some of taking some of that and like just controlling it. Is it there? Is that covert prestige? Is it like, I have a hard time believing that somebody who had such a, an empathetic career and output as Satoshi Kon and as, as Keiko Nobumoto, the, the, his fellow writer on this project, um, that they would write things like that as just gags, as just like, look at these people sort of barbing one another and like, using each other as a, as a, as a, as the butt of a joke. I have a hard time believing that generally. Um, but also the tone of the movie doesn't quite match it. So I'm wondering where this piece, where this like real rudeness will say, uh, this real frankness in discussion and how they talk to each other slots in with what else we've been saying. Yeah. Really good setup. Um, I should first, we should sort of like do a disclaimer, right? Which is that like, yes, I think particularly this movie is rough for Hana. And so like if you are a, a trans person or just sensitive about misgendering or denial of trans existence, um, and this movie skeeves you out for that reason, like that is completely fair, right? Um, I would say that like I think that that the way that these characters talk to one another is really important for a couple of reasons for me. Um, first of all, I think it's like exactly what you pointed out, Jason, which is that like this is like a harmless version of the shame that is leveled against them by every member of society constantly, right? Like it, they speak about it as, as frequently as they do in order for us to understand that it is a daily moment to moment reality for them, right? It's like they aren't necessarily hurting one another when they are disparaging one another, but you know that the reason they know to use those particular pain points is because that's something that they're thinking about all the time right? Like Hana's status as an unprotected trans woman whose identity is actively denied by both the government and the people who are around her on a day-to-day basis um, is something that she thinks about constantly, right? It drives all of her motivations in this movie, right? That's why she wants to be a mother so bad. That's why she wants um, to create a family as badly as she does is so that she can feel like a woman and a caretaker and a mother. Um, same with Gin, right? Like the re- Gin refers to himself as human garbage, right? It's like that didn't come from nowhere. That came from people telling him that. That came from uh, teenagers in an alleyway beating him up for no reason just because they could and there was nothing he could do about it, right? Same with Miyuki um, and her sort of like childishness. Um, so for that reason, I think it's really important for them to do that. And also I think that there's like a great sort of um, 
and and your mileage may vary with this, but like there's a great sort of irony to it where um, it's exactly what you had said, Jason, where like they're sort of like reappropriating that, right? It's like this is sort of like how they demonstrate to one another that they understand each other that they know what, what each other is going through. And that like, I don't know. I mean, again, your mileage may vary, but like Hana is constantly misgendered by Gin, but I don't know that there's anybody that respects her identity the way that he does. Right. I mean, like, yeah, I think that yeah. within their family unit unit, they are arguably the only people who truly see Hana as the woman that she is. Right. They well, treat and, there's, her- and there's even that point at which, and it's a couple of times actually where uh, some characters, including like her backstory, where she is, where she leaves the club that she was working at. She leaves the club that she was working at because she threw a drink at a guy and got mad after he called her him a man. And she Mm -hmm. said, you can call me ugly. You can do all these things. You can say all these things about me, but do not call me a man. And it's just like such a moment of, of uh, autonomy and authority and like control over herself and her identity externalized that like when then Gin says things that are close to as harmful as that to Hana about herself, it feels like, okay, we, we now we're building both of these characters at the exact same time with this very, like, I won't ever call terms like that terms of endearment because I'm not, I can't use them myself in that way. But, but they are in a weird uh, sort of sense, yeah, right? Bet- in a vocabulary that they've established among the, the three of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is very much a like a communal language, right? It's their own like version of communicating with one another. And also it should be noted that like Hana absolutely reams Gin like constantly about the fact that he's uh, good for nothing, that he's a gambler. Like she straight up in front of his daughter, right? Hana Hana comes over and she, <laughs> she just like she it's like, did him dirty in front yeah, of his fucking in front of daughter. Her da- his daughter. Um it's that's maybe the best scene. I don't know. Hana is like the other thing about this movie that makes me so defensive of it is that Hana is like unequivocally the best Satoshi Kone character. She's so great. She says haikus and then a haikus just appear in the air. Uh it it man, she's the best. Anyway. Bro, it's um, so good. Uh, How did, does anybody did, else uh, feel about that, though? I mean, yeah. I it, particularly I'm interested in like the contrast between how these characters treat each other and sort of like how we are meant to like understand they are treated, I guess, by society at whole or what have you. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go next. I think it is similar similar ideas to what you brought up, Harry, and it is a little bit of a like this perspective can be as ironclad or as flimsy as you decide it is, uh, on a, on a given day. Um, but, uh, for me, it is a little bit of like the, this is a story about family and like found family and the family that you sort of make with the community around you. And, uh, it is kind of what you said where it's like, they, say these things because they are so acutely aware of how important they are to each other. Uh, And it is almost, you know, again, your mileage may vary. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of like the big brother teasing the little brother thing where like the big brother can say whatever he wants about the little brother, but nobody else would dare say something bad about the little brother in front of the big brother. It's even in fact, like after Miyuki has an argument, she runs off away from Gin. And then later on she meets other homeless people and they're like, Oh, leave us alone. We don't want uh, Gin on our ass because like, you're the light of his life. Right. Like Mm -hmm. she says that it's, it's also like, it's just as clear that like if anybody else was, was making fun of Hana, like these people would absolutely have her back. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, 
half that and then uh again like i'm not sure where in the um maybe like the the japanese cultural consciousness if this translates as well but i know for me and seemingly our peers uh humor a lot of times is just used as a coping mechanism for pain and trauma where it is just like oh i will make light of this really painful thing uh and that will sort of allow me to take the uh the sting out of it um and yeah like cope really with with the the sort of shame and and things that they're dealing with (laughs) yeah it's really good at helping us take the sting out of the world yeah right um yeah that's that's actually like I'm glad we all got to that point because again, like even at the Trilon, I, I just look around at the crowd around me when, uh, you know, when Gin uses any of these offensive terms for trans folk and queer folk. And I wonder like, does anybody uh, like, like Harry said, legitimate reads of what's actually being said in the movie. Like, I don't think I can assail anybody's understanding of that, but like the way that I've come to contextualize and rationalize this in my head, is this, is everybody getting this? And if they're not getting it's, this, are they laughing at this? <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly it, right? Is it? It's like such a big like. Are you laughing for the right reasons? Uh, <laughs> movie where yeah. like I'm like side eyeing everybody who's laughing at Hana <laughs> and like all of the scenes where she like she like goes goes crazy and like busts up the because I'm like you better be laughing, but you better be laughing like exactly for the reasons <laughs> I want you to be. Otherwise, you're an you, asshole, and I'm coming. You know after the you. the the Phantom guy is laughing for all the wrong reasons. Exactly. We gotta just like I'm bust that guy it. in the nuts. We gotta <laughs> explode that. That man where he stands phantom guys laughing for the wrong reasons i don't think there were i i had my eyes and ears clued in on on dad laugh guy in front of <laughs> us i don't i don't think correct me if i'm wrong i don't think there were any like you know he's laughing like at a dropped fa word or something no. like that no, nothing of i think he you know, did as, an as as admirable go, job yeah i even think okay. that um yeah. when when the the one woman said she was eating for two um and he laughed i felt that that was for the right reasons um, just yes. my my uh, own personal judgment of him. Uh, also, it was extremely right charming reasons. when uh, in the the abandoned house with all the VHS strewn about the floor, there was one that was labeled Star Wars in English, and he turned to his uh, his friend and just said <laughs> Star Wars at full volume <laughs> in the in the theater. Like, yeah, buddy, everyone could Thanks. hear it. He just read the label, and I just I very cute. I mean, you know, you gotta you love to hear it. I. I've, I chart my growth as a man, as a human, by like how mad I get versus how how sincere and heartfelt those moments seem to be in in the real world. Um, awesome. Well, that was my last actual like pivot point talk discussion point, and it sounded Cody like we exhausted your uh, last thoughties before the. Jason, I am exhausted. Oh my good god! My thoughties. <laughs> Everything. Thoughties are out. Um, I really is... hope there's nothing less left of this episode, but uh, I'll let you all um, clean your tanks. Oh, good first. God. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, if anybody's got any scum at the bottom there, um, r- rise it before we lead to the final segment of our show. Uh, I mean, I was maybe going to wait for the for the end, but like there's a homelessness problem in Minneapolis uh, that you can help with because uh, they are your neighbors. Homeless people are your neighbors. They're a part of our community and they're a part of our city, just like they are in this. I'm soapboxing, so I apologize. But basically, I'm, I'm going to link a bunch of resources for supporting Minneapolis homeless people in this episode. And, and you should check them out if you're listening, because that would be a really good thing to do. Thank you. 
uh, found a new type of guy, a guy who's worried about soapboxing in a discussion about Tokyo Godfathers, a man who thinks you can do that. Uh, cool. Well, that should be the end of our discussion on Tokyo Godfathers. Again, check out other Satoshi Kon films at the anime's great genius Satoshi Kon series at uh, the Trilon. That's at Trilon.org. Get tickets there. Follow along when we do episodes about each of those movies um, or go back. We'll probably republish our per- Perfect Blue episode just to have it out there around the same time. You know, get that SEO uh, clout game. But for right now, uh, Seth, I know you know it. Can you help us intro the Cody's Notice segment um, as led by uh, Orchestra Meister Harry Mackin? It would be my honor. All right, leave your mic on. I, I think our so last much, guest Kevin. maybe didn't. <laughs> Let, I think that's happened back. a couple of times where they just they yeah. say that they're going to do it and then they leave themselves muted. And I'm like, Which I saw that motherfucker. Fun, funny as shit, honestly. Like, I mean, they got us. They big yeah. dub. Uh, anyway, um, this is the segment yeah. of the show that we like to call <gasps> Cody's no, Noties. No, no. Oh my god! <laughs> Paul how about, how about the yeah. Um, first, Jason, I definitely thought you were going to scoot past the Noties. I was concerned for a moment there. But, yeah, this, uh, was, this the, was the most demarcated Noties section that we've ever had. Where it was, I was like, the show's over, folks. Now it's time for the Noties. <laughs> no, I I did that. Once I forget what episode it was. I did that once, and then you were like, "Wait, yeah. are we not going to do Co- Cody's noties?" And I felt like <laughs> such a fucking just loaf of shit. It was funny. It was, it was pretty, pretty funny. funny, but it makes me feel bad. Anyway, lay on McDuff. Uh, yeah, on with the show. All right, uh, we got forty-eight minutes. Put it on the clock. Um, no, th- thank you for that introduction, fellas. Um, you know, especially after getting faked out by the super produce himself, uh, that introduction felt just, it felt like it was a miracle from God. Um, ching. Yeah. Um, this, uh, I was thinking about this segment and it didn't feel quite right doing a like holiday holiday, rather flavored segment, given that it's March and, um, you know, just still reeling from, from Christmas. You know what I'm saying? Um, you don't, it's okay. So I was brainstorming and I, I landed on the, the sort of the very idea of a godfather or more, uh, generally a godparent. And I decided our path forward today will be through a little something I like to call fairly tri parents. Yep, that's what we're doing. Um, so here's what's up. I have uh, I've combed the internet for a small but dedicated collection of pairs of godparents and godchildren. The um, the people involved with these parent uh, these pairings are, are well known. It's a weird framing. Uh, they're famous people. Uh, not that godparents who aren't famous aren't interesting in their own right. Uh, but um, you know we need to maintain listenership and keep the lights on here at Tribe Love Studios. So we're sticking with famous people for today. Sorry, non-famous people. Shout out to non-famous people. What I'm going to do uh, is rotate um, between the three of you in alphabetical by first name order. And one at a time, I will uh, read a pairing of uh, godparent and a godchild. You'll determine if that pairing is legitimate or if it's uh, something I made up basically. Um, and so if you're correct, you'll get a point. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the person with the most points at the end wins. You get the gist by now. Uh, and as always, trivia mafia rules apply here. So as you're thinking about these these godparent and godchild pairings, uh, just be mindful of using your mindful and not your Googles uh, at your disposal. So with that, let's go ahead 
and jump in. Um, if my, my alphabetical sorting is correct, uh, Harry will be up first. So Harry, I'm going to read you the first pairing. Everybody, uh, the math was weird. It came out to everybody's going to get four opportunities to get points. It's a little, you know, a little less than usual. Um, so the, the, every point is a little bit more important. It is very much anybody's game. Um, and you're all tied right now. So, Hey, Shout out uh, to you all. Um, you're tied for first um, and tied for last. It's a metaphor for life. But Harry, here is your first one. Um, I'm going to read it off here and you tell me if it is real or fake. Uh, here it goes. Steven Spielberg is godfather to Gwyneth Paltrow. True or false? Whoa. Man, I just have I to remember, say this is fucked up. <laughs> I remember reading that Steven Spielberg is godfather to somebody very famous, which is not at all surprising, I guess. Steven Spielberg probably knows every single famous person. Um, uh, I'm going to go with true. True, Cody. Harry has locked in true. True is the correct answer. Steven Spielberg is indeed godfather to Gwyneth Paltrow. Let the games begin. I wonder uh, what Jason about that. Oh, sorry. We don't have to yeah. talk about oh, it. No, no. Uh, no I mean, um, commentary. Yeah. Uh, how, how are you feeling about that? Do you feel a certain way about that? If I were Steven Spielberg, I would just focus really <laughs> hardcore on the Royal Tenenbaums. I'd just be like, she was so good in the Royal Tenenbaums because she was. <laughs> and then I would just sort of ignore um, like the last 20 years. Everything else. <laughs> yeah. yeah she, she was okay in Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can hear his voice in my head. She was good in only the first Iron Man. Yeah. Um, and that's the only Iron Man that exists, right? I'm Steven Spielberg. That's, yep. Uh, she's she's fine. Um, she, yeah, Royal Tenenbaums. Royal Tenenbaums, come on the pod. Um, whether Steven Spielberg is your, your godparent or not. Um, next up, we're, we're moseying over to Jason. So Harry gets that point, by the way. Harry is on the board. Um, Jason, it's your turn to get on the board. This is your first opportunity. Here is the pairing. Jackie Chan is godfather to Jaden Smith. Oh my good God. Uh, I'm just going to go with my heart and say true. Jason says true. It regrettably is not true. Can you imagine though? That would be Oh my God. Amazing. Can you imagine if be... Jackie Chan was your godfather? <laughs> I don't know. He did, he did the... He did, did, did James Smith kid. do the, the karate, karate kid? kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why this was so, so that's tricky. what I was thinking. Yeah. Very good one, Cody. Yeah. You are a you are a tricky one, Narvison. Mister Grinch. No, I said we weren't going to do holiday stuff today. That's okay. Yep. Okay. So uh, Jason has three more opportunities to get points, uh, and Seth has four more opportunities, including this one, which is coming up in just a few moments. Seth, you tell me if this is for realsies or for Nazis. Um, that came out really, really, you know, Jason, you can, uh, you can, uh, edit that out, right? No, he will not. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, I, I don't deserve the drum roll, um, unless it's in a bad way. Seth, Marissa Tomei is godmother to Zoe Kravitz. Is that true or false? I'm going to stick with true and false. When I try and yeah. uh, have fun with these words, I'm getting into real big trouble. Oh man. Uh, that is quite a pairing. Um, <laughs> I am going to say false. We've locked in false. And judges, the judges are telling me that it's true. Marissa Tomei is, in fact, godmother wow. to Zoe Kravitz. I'm feeling some type of way about that, fellas. I don't, yeah, that's yeah, a lot to handle for me. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was wondering what sorts of comments oh, would need to follow up mine to really bury what I just said. 
<laughs> yes, that is the horny horn. The simpolice are triangulating on Harry's uh, loca- current location. I've just never even conceptualized They're going to wait until the horn recording's horn. over. All right? That's all I'm saying. I've never even thought of that. It's all a whole right. new sort of dimension for me to consider. And just like that, I'm absolved of anything I may have accidentally said on mic. It's a brand new day, brand new noties. Everybody uh, has had their first round uh, taken place. We've got three more rounds apiece, and I'm really re- we're oh, we're soon going to be past the runtime of the movie, which you love to to see and hear. Harry, we're back to you. Um, you tell me if this pairing is true or false. Steven Spielberg is Godfather to Drew Barrymore. True or false? What the fuck? Uh, I. I'm just going to go with True again. Just let it ride. He is a popular guy. He could be a Harry, popular godfather. I kind of said that like Drew Barrymore. I'm just going to let it ride. <laughs> uh, Drew Barrymore also come on the pod. I bet she would be delightful. Um, and I'm sure she is uh, a delightful godchild to Steven Spielberg because that is, in fact, the case. Uh, Steven Spielberg is godfather to Drew Barrymore. <laughs> Seth, I, um, lo- I love that comment. Steven Spielberg refuse. isn't even Catholic. He's not? You're telling me Steven Spielberg, director of Schindler's List, is not a Catholic man? <laughs> Look, we're all we're again, we're all we're all just trying our right. best, aren't we? We're, we're all, all children in the, in the eyes of God. I'm sorry. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Jason, over to you. Um, uh, we've got opportunity number two for you, and you tell me if this is real or fake. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm running out of synonyms. Jane Fonda is godmother to drew barrymore uh true. true or false true jason is writing with true and it is in fact false unfortunately um i do want to say i do want to say um you know who is godmother to drew barrymore and that is Ooh. actress sophia loren who oh. diehard minnesotans may know from grumpier old men co-starring uh <laughs> walter matthau jack lemon and Anne margaret um grumpier old men um, <laughs> they made a and certainly her most famous film. What's that? Oh, I just said they made a movie about the pod. Uninspired joke. We can move on. Wow. Well, yeah, yeah. The sequel to the the first movie made about us, which was just grumpy old men. Both of those movies are real, and they are about old men and fishing. Um, so part of that's true. Um, I'm derailing this hardcore. We're going over to Seth. Seth, it is your turn to get some points on the board. Uh, you tell me if this is true or false. Steven Spielberg is godfather to Maggie Gyllenhaal. False. Seth has locked in false. Again, I got to go to the judges. Judges can confirm that that's false. Yes, yeah, Steven Spielberg has it. Has it uh, he's, he's not... He's not collecting them like trading cards. I was going to say, maybe that's just the move. uh, Maybe it's like, hey, I want this, uh, my daughter to have a great career in film in 30 years. And so I'm just going to go ahead and name Steven Spielberg as her godfather. It sort of like means that he has to cast her at some unspecified (laughs) date later. He's godfather to like 45 people in Hollywood. (laughs) That's how the, and, and I don't know. I mean, Stevie, hey. Um, it's not too late. Would love, uh, to get, no, I, I'm very comfortable with the amount of fame I have right now. Um, all right. We're halfway through. Should just, uh, just point out the scores here. So we've got Harry sitting at two for two. He's got two points. Seth is on the board with one. Jason is currently waiting to get on the board. Uh, again, we're only halfway through. 
this is still very much anybody's game. Um, anything can happen. Um, maybe not anything. A lot of things can happen. Um, one of the things that will happen is we're going back to Harry. Uh, Harry's got his third opportunity to get it. Is he gonna? Is he gonna stay perfect, or is he gonna drop one? Only one way to find out, and, I, and the only way to find out is to listen to me keep talking. Uh, Harry, you tell me if this is true or false. Jamie Lee Curtis is godmother to Jake Gyllenhaal. That can't be true. I don't think that's true. False, Cody. False. So, okay, I was going to say, are you going to lock one of the? Okay, perfect. Um, it is indeed true. Jamie Lee Curtis is godmother to Jake Gyllenhaal. She's she's like Makes fifteen years older than him, isn't she? I don't know, man. I'm using Jake my noodles, Gyllenhaal? not my Googles. All right, yeah, so. yeah, we can move on. Uh, he's he's got to be in his early mid forties, maybe. She's in her 60s, I believe. Yeah, but like, she's not that much older than him. I don't know. It's a mystery. We'll move on. I mean, how old do you have to be to be a god? They could be love interests in a movie, is what I'm saying. I'm doing it again. I'm sorry. We're moving on. Oh, Harry's Harry's going horny. I was going to... Hornyhorn.mp3. There we go. Throw me a buzzer. Because, yeah, I'm with with Harry on this one. You you want to see... You want to see... Jillian Hall and and Lee Curtis slamming in a movie? I want to see Blank and Jamie Lee Curtis slamming. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, I used my hubba hubba at the wrong time. Um, Jason, we're going to you. Uh, this is this is your your third opportunity for some points, your your third opportunity to get on the board here. Everybody often in Nodi Land is rooting for you. They're rooting for everybody, but it's Jason's turn and they're rooting for him. Uh, so, Jason, true or false? Paul Newman was Godfather to Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh my God! This is just bizarre enough to be. I I I have to on premise reject it. I say it's false. Jason says false. Villas. Paul Newman was godfather to Jake Gyllenhaal. Okay, that's the hardest uh, one we've and, done and so, so far. I was so that sure that that was bullshit. Psychopathic. And uh, just to, to weave the web a little bit more, um, uh, again, the nooks and crannies of Hollywood um, mythos, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is in turn godfather to Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams's kid, um, which it oh, makes, wow. you know, a little... I mean, it makes sense. They were buddies. They all worked on Brokeback Mountain. Um, okay, just you know, fun little, fun little tidbit. Uh, it's not really fun. Uh, in fact, it's when you think long and hard about it, it's very not fun. But it is a tidbit nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, and, and Edward Yang is actually Godfather to Finn Wolfhard. Not a lot of people know that. Yo, stop saying my questions. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but seriously, and now we are going over to Seth. Seth. This one is for you. You tell me if it is true or false. John Wayne was godfather to Chuck Norris. Boomer is going wild for this one. Um, I am going to say true. Seth has locked in true. Judges? The judges are only kicking in for Seth's. Um, the judges, in fact, say that is false. That that is uh, that uh, that is fabricated. I feel like if that were true, I would have heard head. way more jokes about it in two thousand five. Sure, yeah, that's yeah. that's very true, actually. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Chuck Norris is the famous, uh, one of the most famous White Sox fans and they did win the world series that year. So, okay. Yeah. That, that checks that's, out. That's um, the reason. Yeah. That's why Harry was saying that that's the only I social so. nexus against which you have to judge Chuck Norris. <laughs> yeah. Why is there something else? We're going to move on. Um, this is our last round. Uh, our last it, again, still, I mean, okay, some of the possibilities have been wiped away um, from the, the possibilities whiteboard that I have off screen. Um, but a lot of things could happen. Again, recapping scores, no points were, were earned that last round. That was a toughie. Uh, so we're still sitting at um, 2-1-0, Harry, Seth, Jason, respectively. Uh, and so, Harry, this is your last opportunity to pull away. Here is the prompt. James Stewart was godfather to Kurt Russell. Oh, I want it to be true. <laughs> Can it be true, Cody? Can it just... I just want it to be true. Just I, lie. I don't think it's true, but I want it to be true, and I'm going to go with true. Please let it be true. Harry has locked in true. <laughs> it's false. Yeah, sorry. That's not... That's not... Uh... What, you want it's, a diehard Republican as your godfather? It's true in my heart. I, I, Kurt, yeah. I, I, just, I just saw your new, your new film. This came from New York. I thought it was a, I was, it was a smash. <laughs> I, I, loved, I loved it. <laughs> you turned it. Oh, my God. That's not, that's not Jimmy anymore. That is the thing as Jimmy. <laughs> he's, got, he's got frostbite. They just pulled him out of the Arctic. Um, was, was James Stewart the thing? Uh, that's well conversation for another day, fellas. Uh, Jason, this is your, is your, your, listen, um, this one is for all the marbles. I get, I get 11 points if I get this right. That's what judges they're nodding their heads. The judges. uh, This is, this is for all the marbles in the marble bag. And here it is. Jack Nicholson is godfather to Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn's son. Wyatt Russell. Um, true or false? True. Just gonna, just, I want it. Yes. True. Jason says true. It isn't, uh, unfortunately not true. No, I meant, Sorry, I meant false. Uh, is there a lag? Ooh, is there a delay? This sucks though, because like, I'm with you, Jason. You could, I mean, Jack Nicholson, arguably the worst person to be godfather <laughs> in history uh, of any children, but wow. like, if you had told me like anybody was the godson or daughter to Jack Nicholson, I would have believed you. I, I would yeah. have said true no matter what. It's, it's like, a yeah, sticky idea. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And for this last one, as, um, as fate would have it, um, uh, fellow, fellow sports guy on the pod, Seth, this one, I'm going to throw you a little something of a curveball. Just bear with me here. Pay close attention. This one is for you. You tell me true or false. Belinda is fairy godmother to Cinderella, the character Cinderella. Belinda is fairy godmother to the character Cinderella. Time out. What's the sports angle here? Because <laughs> uh, I threw you. It was a, it threw oh, because it's a curveball. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, didn't you see it? It went, you yeah. know. Uh, oh, man. Okay. I'm trying to. So, Meriwether. And Fauna are the fairy godmothers in Sleeping Beauty. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just trying to remember my uh, my, my fairy godmothers here. Um, Belinda. I don't know if... I thought it was something more fantastical than Belinda. I'm going to say false. Lock it in. Seth, 
Seth has locked in false. Again, I'm going to go to the judges. They're exchanging glances. They're grinning lightly, and they're starting to nod their heads. It is indeed false. As far as I can tell, this character is simply named Fairy Godmother. Let's go. Oh, thank God, because I was feeling like an idiot. I was like, I didn't even know the Fairy Godmother had a name. <laughs> like, yeah, Seth was out here playing 40 chess. He's like, well, in, yeah. in Sleeping Beauty, they've got these names. And, and Seth gripped, and Seth gripped but that was the bat. In Seth the Mighty, he swung, and he connected. That's right. That is freaking right. And with that... Well, in, the, in the Italian hey, dub, she's listed as... Uh, <laughs> yeah. You had to read the footnotes uh, on the VHS in Italian. Oh, you must have had the clamshell case. I only had the, the little sleeve. Um, we'll, we'll go digging through those archives later. Um, clutch uh, point by Seth, pulling himself into a co-lead with Harry. Uh, so they're going to have to saw that trophy in half or, or whatever um, they decide to do. But Seth and Harry, two points. Jason is handsome. Uh, this has been fairly tri-parents or, um, or <laughs> AKA adventures in Hollywood nepotism. Uh, have fun not being famous. Everyone listening to this, it's it's it, we're having fun. You know what? I'm coming around more and more to the idea that being right is just boring. That, uh, you know, maybe taking the L is like the interesting way to live life, that it's that it's where the real joy of of being alive is. Yeah, you're like that one uh, Borges short story that that said that actually Pontius Pilate is one of uh, Jesus's greatest disciple because he was what was required for Jesus to attain godhood. So like like that, it's like somebody has to lose for me and Seth to win. Right. So really, you, you guys are would not, essential you'd be no, You would be nobody without me. Right. You'd be crawling around in the dirt. You'd be. It's a really good point. You know, he makes a, it's a great argument. I'm a compelling orator, uh, and this is Try Love. Thank you again, Seth, for joining us for another episode of Try Love. Um, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me online at SN Zarati. Uh, also follow me on Letterboxd. I want to get my following yeah. up. I, I'm Team Followback, so so check that out. You're you're a good man. I'm not Team Followback. I don't even know if I follow you. Uh, this has been. Try Love, Literal Roundtable Podcast. Uh, check out more movies by Satoshi Kon and other people at the trial on there. Are- already series planned through uh, mid-spring and into the summer, so there's no excuse not to check out at least one movie there. Tickets are not expensive, the popcorn is great, and things are looking up. Uh, check out their schedule at trilon.org, um, and, uh, and you know, give us a follow if you like. Uh, check out our previous episodes about movies that have played there and other discussions we've had. Uh, we've got a lot of cool, older content on that feed, and we've never been paid a dime for any of it, but we like doing it a lot, um, and and we will continue to do it uh, in this fashion. But uh, that's enough. Uh, if you see Aaron, let him know that there's a, still a podcast that he's supposed to be on once in a while. Um, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Salutations, fellow coneheads. Um, sorry, I said the word Nazis. It was the heat of the moment. And I was riffing. <laughs> and <laughs> listen... Uh, again, just trying my best. Uh, we're recording this on Monday evening, which has thrown me all out of sync with, uh, with myself. That is the, uh, the excuse I'm rolling with. Um, take it easy. Thanks for listening. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Yes. Salutations, Coneheads. I do not apologize for my simping after Marissa Tomei, Zoe Kravitz, or Jamie Lee Curtis. The year of the simp rolled on. Uh, and I am a little freak, so the little freak 
All right. Uh, follow Seth on, on Letterboxd. Follow all the guys on Letterboxd. Uh, Letterboxd is great. Probably don't follow me. My um, reviews are kind of experimental. Um, but you can follow me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, and you can follow the pod at Trilove Podcast. And you can find us at Godzilla or the Satoshi Cones that are playing because we're going to be at those. So check them out. Thank you. Big breasts. Cool. Cool.